0: Welcome to Cooper Talk presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And we have a great show today. We have a, we have a gentleman who's written on some very, you know, legendary TV shows. He's also a big baseball fan where he's done play-by-play commentary. And he's from LA, so I'm guessing he's a Dodger fan. And my guest is Ken Levine. How you doing, Ken?
1: I'm doing fine, and yes, I, I am a Dodger fan. In fact, I also hosted Dodger Talk, the talk show, uh, before and after Dodger games for like eight years, so yes, yeah, so I bleed Dodger blue.
0: Now, what is your take on the playoffs this year? I mean, the Dodgers had such a great time, you know, they were hot, they were the hottest team in baseball, you know, possibly being, people saying they were going to have a better record than the Seattle Mariners And back in the day, and then... They hit a little bit of a wall, but as a fan and as a baseball lover, what do you think of their chances are? Do you think Kershaw will find that magic that he has during a regular season and just bring it in the playoffs?
1: Well, he gave up a lot of home runs, his first outing. Uh, you know, they're they're all a little shaky. I mean, to me, the, the best two teams at baseball are the Houston Astros and Cleveland Indians. And, you know... They both can't win the World Series. Uh, if the Dodgers are playing at the top of their game, they're pretty phenomenal. Uh, they have a fantastic bullpen, and if they hit, um, they can be very, very tough, but, uh, but they're vulnerable. Uh, you know, uh, baseball is a very humbling game, you know, and they had that great 50, or whatever, 43 and 7, uh, but you just can't, that up the whole time, and you mentioned the Seattle Mariners who in 2001 won 116 games, which is like unbelievable, right? And they still lost the American League Championship Series to uh, so two teams, so uh, a team once again, but um so yeah, uh, like I said, anything can happen in baseball.
0: Now you've had a great career, and you love baseball. As a kid, were you focused on comedy and writing, or baseball, or both? How did you shape this this career that's spawned like really cool stuff? <laughs> well, you know, when I
1: was a kid, first of all, I heard Vince Scully when the Dodgers came to Los Angeles in 1958, and I was just a little kid, uh, you know, and all little kids have dreams of becoming. Baseball players, and they reach that certain point in their lives when they realize, you know what, I just don't have the skills to become a major leaguer. Well, for me, it was eight, and uh, and then I heard Vince Scully, and it was like, wow, you know, I could do this. I could travel around with the club, go to exotic places like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, and and be a baseball announcer. So uh, that was always in my mind. Um, I always loved radio, I got involved in, in Top 40 radio, and uh, enjoyed funny disc jockeys, and I always enjoyed comedy, and uh, I was kind of a funny kid in, in high school, uh, you know, since I can't throw a spiral, uh, you know, the only way I could possibly try to impress girls was to be funny, so I... Well, maybe that's kind of a career for me. And then when I saw the Dick Van Dyke show and I saw, you know, Rob Petrie could get this unbelievable girl in Laura (laughs) Petrie by being a comedy writer. And I thought, well, hey, maybe there's something to this. So uh, I always figured comedy would somehow uh, be part of what I did. And uh, went to UCLA and got heavily involved in the campus radio station. And when I got out of college, uh, for like the first four or five years, I was a top 40 disc jockey using the name Beaver Cleaver on some <laughs> stations like uh, WDRQ Detroit, KYA, San Francisco, K100 Los Angeles, uh, KCBQ, B100 in San Diego. Uh, 10Q in L.A., um, and stations in Bakersfield and San Bernardino. But, um, yeah, I was bouncing around the country doing that and trying to be funny. I was kind of like Howard Stern before Howard Stern, uh, except his career kept moving upwards, and I kept getting fired. And uh, at one point, I, I remember I was doing all nights at KMEN in San Bernardino, and uh, making like $650 a month. And I went to see the Woody Allen movie Sleeper, which had just come out. The theatrical release had uh, just come out. And, and I'm sitting through that and I'm laughing and people in the theater are laughing and I have this kind of aha moment like, well, wait a minute. You know, this guy is writing movies and he's doing sight gags and he can actually hear the laughter. You know, I'm sitting in a cow pa- pasture uh, in the middle of the night, playing records and trying to be funny for seven people, and four of them are probably Seven Eleven managers who are tied up in the back, who were just robbed. So, like, what's wrong with this picture? And um, that's when I decided to to try writing, and we can go over those steps uh, in more detail, but. Um, the overview is then when I was in my mid-30s, I um, I had had a certain amount of success, but I kind of longed to do something else, and I went back to my original dream of being a baseball announcer, and I thought, you know what, if I don't pursue it now, I never will, so I spent a couple of years going to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder, calling games into a tape recorder until I got good enough that I felt I could send tapes around. And I did, and I worked in the minors for three years, uh, all in AAA ball, Syracuse for one season and Tidewater for two. And then there was an opening with the Baltimore Orioles, and I sent in my tape and got that job, which led to a big league career. So uh, those uh, are the broad strokes of um, of my career, and you can ask me specific questions, and we can dive into aspects of it that you find more interesting than others.
0: Well, you know, what, you know what fascinates me is the fact that, you know, you were recording on tape, and now it's like everyone does MP3 files, and it was really, when you were trying to get these jobs, you really had to be proactive, because now people can just get on the internet and try to send something, but for that, you had to go through a whole process to make the tape and get it out, and just... Like, you would just call it, what was your style? I mean, were you a, a very, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia listening to Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis, And they both, uh-huh. they, they were great, you know, they were great off each other. What was your play-by-play style? Were you an excitable person, like a Chris Berman type, or were you just someone who was no, just really knew the facts? No.
1: Um, well, I, I tried to be me. I, I tried to sound very natural, and because I don't have the world's greatest voice, as you can tell, but um, you know, I I try to sound like I was a real guy, and I also have a sense of humor, so I try to be an announcer who is very much in the moment, and um, and try to inject kind of an infectious quality. The fact that I was at the ball game, uh, calling it. Uh, for me, there was like no other place that I would rather be, and I wanted to communicate that to the listener so that when they were listening, that they kind of got swept up in it too. Like, yeah, this is like really cool. You know, I get to immerse myself in a a couple of hours. So I guess that was kind of my style. I mean, I was uh, influenced by Finn Scully, obviously. But I tried very hard uh, not to be a Vin Scully clone, uh, especially at the time I was breaking in. There were lots of guys who were just doing Vin Scully, you know, in the minor leagues. You know, and a, a two two pitch <laughs> is low. You know, so I tried not to do that.
0: Now, what were, what was one of your favorite games you called? Was there any one game that just something amazing happened on the field? Like being a baseball lover, you know, we all remember watching, you know, TV and seeing a no-hitter. I still remember watching Henry Aaron's, uh, home run off Al Downing. I still remember that, watching it on Channel 17 in Philadelphia. What, was there any big, one big event that just stuck with you that you just said, I can't believe I got to call this amazing thing?
1: Well, it's actually not a, A play itself it's a game and ironically it's a spring training game like I said I was doing Dodger talk for eight years and occasionally would fill in and do the play-by-play of Dodger games which as a kid growing up in LA is like to me the ultimate so there was one game in spring training when I was going to fill in and do the radio And it was a TV game as well. And when there was a TV game, Vince Scully did the first innings simulcast on radio and television. Then he did the remaining six on TV, and the radio guy would pick it up and do the remainder of the game on the radio. And that was me. And so I can say for one day in my broadcasting career, Los Angeles Dodger baseball was broadcast. By Vin Scully and me.
0: That's awesome.
1: And that was, yeah, no. And I still have. I saved the tape, you know, of him going, you know. And now for more play-by-play, here's Ken Levine. Like, whoa, yeah, that it's, it's, uh, still gives me chills. So, uh, so there was that. That's probably my my greatest moment in. In baseball
0: announcing, and that's a pretty great moment. I mean, when you think about it, you know Vince. Scully oh, God! Yes. It doesn't get bigger than that. I mean, unless yeah, you're a Cubs it'll fan. Yeah,
1: Come
0: again? Yeah, unless you're a you Cubs know? fan. It was Harry Carey. You know, it doesn't get bigger than as a Dodger fan, Vince Scully, who's legendary to introduce you. Well, now, how did you get into the to the TV writing field? You said you were you were doing radio, and you were, saw Woody Allen, and that really made an impact on you. How did you start to get into a TV career at that time? Because there wasn't as many shows as there is now, and it must have not been as easier to crack you know, into that.
1: Well, um, you're right. Uh, And and I hadn't taken any TV writing classes when I was at UCLA, and I was heavily involved in the campus radio station. We had one of the disc jockeys who had his heart set on being a sitcom writer, and he took a comedy writing class at UCLA, and uh, he wrote a spec episode of That Girl and got an A+. Plus. And so I, I read it, and, and I thought, God, this is a piece of shit. And if this is what they're teaching, I don't want any part of it. So I never took any writing classes, and he never became a writer. Um, but um, when I started out in the early 70s wanting to do this, it really was a golden age of TV comedy. There was All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Odd Couple and Rhoda and Baud and um, the Jeffersons and that sort of thing. And uh, I, you know, thought like, wow, I would love to do this, but I didn't know how to get started. And uh, at the time, in addition to being a disc jockey, I was also in the Army Reserves, so I wouldn't get sent to Vietnam and uh, I was at Army Summer Camp in Fort Carson, Colorado, in 1973, and I met this guy, David Isaacs, who had just joined the unit, and the two of us started talking, and it turned out that he, too, had aspirations of being a comedy writer. At the time, he was working at ABC schlepping film cans in a uh, long-ago-obsolete Apartment, and um, you know, and I was doing, you know, announcing, you know, playing kung fu fighting five times a night in <laughs> uh, yeah, different cities, and um, so I got fired from San Bernardino, and I moved back home to Los Angeles to live with my parents while I sent out other tape, and uh, and I called them up and I said, hey, um, you want to try writing the script? And he said, okay. And, uh, I had to go to a bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, Venice Bookstore, which sold on its remainder table TV scripts. They were all the families and Mary Tyler Moore show and that sort of thing. And I remember buying an odd couple script for $2 and leafing through it. It's like I had no idea what the format was like. You know, right. here in your an apartment day. Uh, Felix and Oscar are having dinner. Oh, that that's how you do it. And uh, so Dave and I would get together on the weekend and we would write uh, a pilot that, uh, you know, we thought, all right, well, let's break in by writing a pilot. And so we wrote about uh, two kids in college because we were both 23 years old and that was the sum total of our, experience in life, and we wrote this pilot, and we had no outline, we had no idea what we were doing, Um, it would have cost probably $70 million in 1973 (laughs) money to do, and uh, we had a good time, but nobody was remotely interested in buying it, and then I happened to meet a a television writer, Frank Buckson, who had done uh, All the Family, and The Odd Couple, and other shows at Paramount, and he read it and said, well, you know, show some promises and funny things here, because if you guys want to break into the industry, what you really have to do is write a uh, spec script from an existing show. So for us, the show that we really admired the most was the Mary Tyler Moore show, but we had no idea how to write one. So what we did, and fortunately, uh, you know, I had no girlfriend, so I had, you know, no social life. But we would get together every Saturday night and watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. It was on CBS Saturdays at 9. And back in those days, you know, there was no VCRs, like DVRs. So if you wanted to watch a program, you had to park your ass in front of the TV when it was on. So, David and I would meet every Saturday night. We would watch the show, and I would hold up a little microphone to the speaker and we would audio tape it. Then we would go back and listen to the tape and write an outline, a detailed outline of the episode. And we did that week after week after week. And after about six, seven weeks, all of a sudden the patterns started becoming a parent, and we started being able to uh, figure out, you know, what their thought process was and uh, how they plotted these shows out, and whether there was an A story and a B story, and when did the B story start, and what did the shows lead up to, and you know what kind of things were in every episode, um, and so based on that, we then wrote a, a spec to the Mary Tyler Moore show which ultimately got us a job on the Jeffersons that the um, story editor of the Jeffersons read and liked our Mary Tyler Moore episode so invited us to pitch stories and we pitched a story that they responded to and so we got hired to write the script and that was how we broke in but you're right in that it's It was much harder to break in back then because there were only three networks. You know, uh, today there's 52 different networks and shows on Nick at Night and USA and Bravo and Amazon and Hulu and, you know, there's all kinds of outlets. Uh, Back then it's like you either broke into the major leagues or you didn't play. But one difference between then and now is that shows back then generally used more freelance writer. Uh, The staff composition was made up differently. There was usually a small staff of three or four people, and then to fill out the scripts, they would hire freelance writers. You could actually make a living. We made a living for about a year just writing freelance episodes for different shows, and that has pretty much dried up today. But uh, we were very fortunate. We, we broke in in 1975,
0: and um, the rest, as they say, is profit. Now, now do you think because you guys were uh, writing together, it was easier to do those Episodes for different shows? Because, you know, you have to learn the characters. You have to learn what's going on with the show. Do you think it helped that you had a writing partner back then?
1: Yeah, I think especially starting out, it's extremely helpful in comedy to have a a partner. Uh, Number one, you know, comedy is so subjective, and it really helps to have somebody whose opinion you trust there to say, yeah, that's funny or no, that's not funny. And also I think starting out it's great to sort of have that support system um, because you're really leading with your chin. You're really putting yourself out there when you write these scripts. So it's nice that it's not all just on you. And a writing partner uh, can, if you have the right one, um can really kind of make up for your deficiency. Yeah. You know, it's like, if there are certain things that you're strong at, but there are other aspects that you're weak at, well, if you can find a partner who will complement that, you know, who is strong in the areas that you're weak, and weak in the areas that you're strong, uh, between the two of you, you turn out a better product, and uh, you begin to uh, learn from the other their strengths. So you begin to up that aspect of your game, too. Uh, yeah, the only downside is you you split the salary. Uh, but another upside is that when you're up for a job, if it's like a writing team is up for a job and the solo biter is up for the same job, You know, you you have the benefit of saying you get two
0: for one. Right. The higher up. Now, and so it's easier to get jobs. Now, so you're writing and you're doing these freelance gigs, and then now, how does the job on Mash happen? Uh, uh, Well, the job on
1: Mash happened. uh, You know, a a lot of this is luck. Um, We, when we sold the Jeffersons, we got an agent. And several agents were interested in signing us, and we went with two young women who were at a very small agency, but we figured they were very enthusiastic, they seemed to have their finger on the pulse of the industry. We thought, well, if we sign with a bigger agency, yes, it's more prestigious, but we'll just be kind of, you know, forgotten because... They have all these clients that are bigger and more important. So we went with these two girls, and uh, they got us some freelance assignments on, on various shows. And then they moved up to a bigger agency. The agency they happened to move up to was called Major Talent. And one of the clients of Major Talent was the showrunner of MASH, Gene Reynolds. And this was now the beginning of the fifth season of MASH. And Larry Gelbart had run the first four seasons of MASH and left. And so really, for the first time, the series was looking to add some writers. And she was having lunch with this agent of ours and, and mentioned that you know, they're open to reading material from young writers. So she sent him our draft of the Jeffersons, which he really liked, and he uh, invited us to meet with him, and we met with him, and he talked about the show and research and loaded us down with research, and it helped that both David and I had been in the Army Reserves, as I mentioned, so... We had a, a pretty good deal of what the U.S. Army life is like, which I think is invaluable in writing a show like MASH. So um, he says, go off and come up with some story ideas. And I said, how many? And he thought that was kind of an odd question. Uh, but I said, at the Jeffersons, you can only pitch three stories. Okay. And he said, oh, no, I'll well, pick as many good ones as you have. We said, okay. And we came up with some stories. We called him a week later and made an appointment. and we went down and saw him. And we came in with 50, 50 MASH story ideas. There was no way that we were going to walk out of that <laughs> office without MASH assignment. And after the first 10,
0: He's like, oh, okay, okay, uh, idea
1: three and idea seven. Uh, we'll put those two together. And uh, so that was our first mash. And it was the episode where the gas heater blows up. The guy is temporarily blind. And so that that was the first mash that, that we wrote. And we worked out the story with Gene and then went off to write the script And as we were writing the script, we thought to ourselves, you know, in this outline, there's no spot where Hawkeye, um, lets us know what he's going through, you know, how, how is he feeling about all of this, and what, what is it like to be temporarily blind? So, we decided we're going to write a speech, and it's not in the outline, um, But if they don't like it, they can just take it out. It's just a speech. Um, And we spent something like three days working on this speech. I mean, draft after draft after draft. Um, It's probably 60 different versions of this speech until we finally got the speech that we liked. But we turned in the script, and they were very happy with the script, but the speech absolutely knocked them out. They weren't expecting it, they thought it was great, and I'm happy to watch that particular episode, and Hawkeye delivers that speech, the speech he delivers is word for word
0: our first draft. Your first draft? Not our first draft, not a word was
1: changed from our original draft of that speech. And uh, and that script became like our golden ticket. That was really our launching pad. Um, Our agent would send that around, and we would get any assignment. And then, you know, we got on staff of the Tony Randall show, which was for MTM. And then um, the next season, MASH uh, hired us to be uh, story editors. And as luck would have it, the guy who was above us, who was the head writer, left midway through the season. And so David and I were elevated to head writers. I mean, we're 26 years old, and we're the head writers of Match. Okay.
0: It's like amazing. What is that feeling? I mean, you know, you're you know, you said you're 26, and you guys. It's not like you guys. You worked hard. You know, you worked hard, but it must just be a really. Personally, you love TV. It must be a surreal feeling because MASH was popular, and you're in the middle of it. I mean, what goes through a 26 year old's head at that time? Like, you must be thinking, "I'm on the top of the world."
1: Well, a lot of things. Um, first of all, the the guy who was the head writer um, was a very he's a very good writer, but he working on staff was not his best thing. He was the kind of writer that should be sitting in a room by himself writing brilliant scripts, which he did. But the pressure and working on a show which is really just like, you know, uh, a conveyor belt with Lucy and the chocolate, um, you know, it was very tough. He left, and and, uh, David and I couldn't wait for him to leave. Uh, you know, it's it's like the, you know, handcuffs were removed, and we could finally dive in and do what we wanted. So in that regard, we really relished it. Um, you know, did we know that MASH, we knew it was very popular, did we know that it was going to be this iconic show? No. I think we would have been paralyzed had we known that. We were just trying to do the best episodes that we possibly could. And, um, and even at the time, I can honestly say that, yes, we really did, uh, appreciate it. And especially for me, because having come from radio where, you know, the casual listener doesn't give a shit, you know, when, uh, when we come out with a new jingle package, um, All of us radio guys are like, oh wow, there's a new jingle package. But the casual listener, they don't care. They don't know. Oh, oh, there's a new jingle package. So what? But when you're doing a show that's seen by 30 million people and, uh, and all of a sudden you're getting letters commenting on things that you're doing, it's like, wow, people are, people are paying attention again, going back to my radio days, I was always on the number two station. You know, if the big station in town in LA was AHJ, I was on NQ. If the big station in Detroit was CKLW, I was on uh, WDRQ. Never got to Philadelphia, but I'm sure W.P.L. never would have hired me. Right. So, uh, you know, I was always on the number two. And being on MASH, it's like, wow. I'm on the number one station, finally. So, uh, yes, I, I appreciated every moment of that. But, uh, no, did not, um, you know, think that it was going to become such an iconic show. I also grew a beard at that time so that it would make me look uh, a little bit older. Because, you know, I'm 26 years old, and, you know, I'm
0: supposed to give... Harry Morgan notes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so you, you have the ticket, you know, you, you have that golden ticket with MASH, you know, you're on that show. Where do you travel from then? What, what, how does your career unwind? And have worked for different shows in between. you ended up on Cheers, but what was your steps in between your career? And, and I know you also wrote, uh, volunteers, a screenplay. What was your path after MASH? Um, no,
1: don't mention after MASH. Uh, we
0: left (laughs) left mash in the eighth season so we were there from the fifth to the eighth
1: uh and we left because we were kind of burned out there was that one season season seven where david and i pretty much wrote or rewrote the entire year ourselves 25 episodes um We'd done every hot show, every cold show, every visiting general, everyone had slept with everyone else, there been every kind of mystery disease, <laughs> every leisure activity had been interrupted by, uh, by choppers. Um, you know, we had every kind of VIP so we just felt like uh, it was time to do something else and we uh, got development deals working with studios to do pilots and we did a couple of pilots and we wanted to break into the movie side of the business, which at the time, it was very hard to cross over. Um, it's much easier today, but back then, if you were writing for television, uh, the movie industry considered you a second-class citizen. So even though we had been the head writers of MASH, um, studios wanted us to write a spec screenplay. So we did. We wrote a spec screenplay, and that got us some attention, and we met with a producer of volunteers, and um, we we wrote volunteers. Originally, we wrote that in like nineteen eighty, and uh, it didn't get made until nineteen eighty-five.
0: Now, when you wrote, which, oh, I say, yeah, it's, oh, I
1: was going to say, which is typical. In
0: the movie industry, <laughs> I was going to say when you when you were writing that was it was it a lot different because the process because when you're writing on a TV show, as you said, you know you're changing drafts, you're changing hair, you're doing notes on a movie. It must be more. It, did it was it as exciting as being on the TV set or or what? What was your feeling of being on a movie set? No, writing when you um, when you sat down to write well, the screenplay. Guess, Uh Here's here's the difference. Uh, I
1: would say. Um, television I was on the set all the time and once I became a showrunner it's like you know I was the boss of the set okay we have done uh, three movies that got made and I have never been on the set of any of my movies even for one minute now some of that was because they were on location but still, I, I have never been on a movie set that did one of my movies.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. So, you know, earlier you had said, you know, when you saw the Mary Tyler Moore show, you guys really studied that and it helped you. What was it like when you got to write for her?
1: You know, uh, a kind of a dream come true. Like, oh my God! You know, and, and Mary uh, one night came to dinner at my house and was telling Dick Van Dyke stories. And I'm like,
0: oh, I, I can't believe that Laura Petrie is actually in my house. <laughs> um, it
1: uh, there were a lot of problems with the with the show, and um, it only lasted thirteen weeks, uh, but. You know, it was you know one of those um, you know kind of surreal moments uh, to be able to actually write for Mary Tyler Moore.
0: So you write for that, and then I know you wrote some episodes for Wings, which for to me is Wings was one of a underrated show. Like you talk to young people, yeah, thank people. you, I agree. They don't I agree. The characters were amazing. I mean. All of them, which is so good. And it's funny because you talk, maybe because it's not as accessible. You don't see it on, you know, Nick at Night or this. But if you talk to some young people, you know, that's one of those shows, they don't know that and they don't know Barney Miller, which were two great shows. You got to write on Wings. What was it like when you got to write with just such a great base of really strong characters? Did it make your job easier? Yeah, you know, it was a a show
1: that it was created by uh, Peter Casey and David Lee and David Angel who went on to create Frasier and uh, you know, we had a great writing staff and it was a, a terrific cast and, and I worked on the show for everything other than like I think the last year I, I consulted and did one night a week and um, a, you know and, and we would just you know, kind of scratched our heads because we got no Emmy love and we were, you know, sort of considered second-class cheers, I guess. But, you know, I would watch the shows and I would go, these are, these are funny, these are great. I, I don't get it. It's like, why doesn't this show receive more love and recognition? Um, you know, but we all worked really hard on it and and did our best and did shows that we're really proud of. And uh, it seems like now Wings is kind of getting it due. It's interesting. Wings uh, was sold to the USA Network when USA first started out. And at the time, USA had very little programming. So they would run Wings episodes like six times a day. You know, there would be like six episodes of Wings a day on uh, on the USA Network, and because of that, people started catching on and and following it. And I I think it is you know it's it's cable run which got people to appreciate the show um, much more so than our time on NBC.
0: Now, Cheers, another iconic show you've written for, how did that job come about? Were you known in a business that they Approach you, or how did you end up on Cheers?
1: Well, we, like I said, we had done the Tony Randall
0: show at MTM
1: and had worked with uh, James Burroughs, who directed several of our episodes. And now it's the... Beginning of 1982, and David and I had a development deal at Lorimar, and um, and I get a call one day from Jimmy Burroughs saying, hey, um, the Charles Brothers and I are uh, doing a series, and we got picked up for the fall for NBC, um, would you like to produce it with us? And so we met with Glenn and Les. We had never met Glenn and Les Charles. You know, when we were on the Tony Randall show, we were on the second floor. They were on Phyllis on the first floor. And, you know, we, we never really, um, you know, connected with them. Anyway, um, at the time, Cheers was just a, a first draft. In fact, in the original first draft that we received, um, Sam Malone was a football
0: Like when, Because in the beginning, it didn't get good ratings. And luckily, it's different now. TV's different back then where they stayed with it. You know, now it'll be gone. You have to do two episodes and you don't get ratings. Your show is pretty much gone, even if they've even recorded them. Um, What was, were you guys worried after that first season? Or did you know that the network believed in the show?
1: had hired all of us at MTM years before so you know Grant had uh, a real respect for the show and for the creative team plus NBC at a time at that time was in the tank and um, so they really didn't have anything better in the pipeline You know, and they were very supportive, Um, you know, creatively, they pretty much left us alone. But, um, yeah, I I can honestly say that we were really, really sweating out getting the pickup for the back nine. You know, I mean, there was, you know, uh, a a lot of thought that, well, it's going to be 13 and out, and this was a a very noble experiment and, uh, like, one of those failed shows that you're proud of. But, um, yeah, we were not a lock to get picked up for the
0: back nine. Now, how long so were we... we... were thrilled. We got picked up at the last minute, too. Like, in November. And that was season one. So, so you got it now. When did you find out you get season two? Because I believe you won an Emmy in season two. Uh,
1: Up um, in the in the second half of the season, um, remember they switched our time slot. They they flipped us with taxi. Um, We were on at nine thirty for a while, and it started getting some traction. And and, again, you know, Grant really liked the show and.
0: underground hit. Yeah, it's amazing you know? it's amazing the numbers how they've changed. You know, you hear some of these staggering numbers and you know, you talk about it, you know, and I talked to people who were in you know actors in some of these shows that weren't top twenty but they were getting the numbers and they were getting recognized all the time because there was still so many eyes on them.
1: Yeah. When I was on the Tony Rivendell show we were we were getting thirty shares. Okay, 30 shares. And uh, we were on the bubble. And ABC ABC said, all right, we'll pick you up for 13. They were not even going to pick us up for a full second season. And CBS came along and said, oh, shit, we'll give you 22. (laughs) And then they moved to, to CBS. But can you imagine a 30 share and you're on the bubble? Today, if you get a 30 share... Uh, you know, you get a 10-year renewal.
0: <laughs> now, you're writing and you're doing a lot of TV writing. I know you've directed some TV, too. When did you decide to, try to start to direct, and how did that path happen?
1: Well, it, it got to the point, being on staff of all of these shows, that I started dreading going down to the stage for run throughs, because a bad run through meant I was going to be in the room until 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, rewriting. So, you know, year after year of that, it got to the point where it would be time for a run through, and all I would do is just hold my breath, like, oh God, hopefully this isn't going to be a train wreck. And, and I thought to myself, you know, there's something wrong if you're in television and you're not looking forward to being on the set. You know, it's like, this is where we're making the TV shows. You know, this should be the thing that you look forward to. And so uh, I I thought, well, you know, I, I, I'd like to direct, um, because even if it's a bad run through, um, I still go home for dinner. Uh, So I, um, about a year, year and a half going to um, going to the set watching directors work watching Jim Burroughs, Andy Ackerman um, you know other, other directors and learning and uh, and eventually I, I got an assignment and ironically the first show that hired me was Wings the first thing i ever directed was a wings episode um which was nice because i knew the crew and i knew the cast and they were all you know very very tolerant with this uh this newbie director and um and it was it was fun it was nerve-wracking especially the camera aspect of it was like nerve-wracking but it was actually fun and um So I continued doing that, and I've directed over 60
0: episodes now. It's amazing. Now, do you think your directing style was uh, enhanced because you were a writer, so you really put a lot of value in the written word? Yes, I think um, one helped the
1: other. Um, Yeah, the fact that as uh, as a writer, because, you know, I don't necessarily speak, actors speak, um, but it's like I understand the story and I understand the motivation. And if something doesn't work, you know, i spent enough time on stages with my own show and, you know, fixing teams that if something doesn't work, I can say to the actor, um, this is not you. This is a writing problem. Okay. Don't kill yourself trying to make this work. We'll fix it tonight in the room. Um, and, you know, I, I remember a piece of advice Jim Burroughs gave me. And he said, the most important thing is the script and the story. You know, and you can have all the fancy camera angles that you want, but if the story doesn't work, it's going to be a mess. And on the other side, if you have a story that really worked, you can have one camera... And just have a master of the whole thing, and that's it, and the show will work. So, um, so I, you know, I feel that, you know, my background in writing, um, helped immeasurably in directing and getting the, the actors to trust me. And then the same is true on the other side. I became a better writer once i really had the feel of what actors go through and what actors need
0: so why did did you ever think of just pursuing the directing full time or did you just still love the writing a lot i know you you wrote for a backer and you also directed but how does that work did you ever think of saying i'm just going to pursue the directing right now and put uh, on money-
1: I was always still writing and always still consulting. But, um, yeah, I, there were a number of years where I did a lot of directing. And it had more to do with the fact that there was a, a glut of sitcoms. And back then there were so many multi-camera sitcoms that, um, that regular directors didn't want to get tied down to one show. You know, they didn't want to have to do 25 episodes of the same show. So they would do six episodes of this and eight episodes of that and nine episodes of this. Um, and so there were holes in all of the, um, you know, all of the lineups. And, um, you know, as a freelance director, I, I would have like a season where I would do, Three, Everybody Loves Raymond's, and then I would do five Beckers, and I would do three episodes of Kristen Chenowich's show, and two episodes of, uh, Late Line, and three episodes of Darman Greg, and I would just go around and do all of these different shows. But as the, um, you know, as the, you know, sitcom world began to constrict, there were fewer and fewer shows and some of these directors just clung to a show So, like, you know, if you're the director of Mom or you're the director of Big Bang Theory, you're going to do every episode, (laughs) you know?
0: I know you've also written some plays. How did you make that foray into play? Is that something you had always wanted to do? Like as you were working on your career, did you want to get involved in theater?
1: Others, you don't. And when you don't sell a spec screenplay, you know, you spend six months working on it, and it gets, you know, submitted over a weekend, and then if studios pass, it's dead. And no one's going to ever read this. It's like six months of your life is just just dead. And yeah, you can go out and raise $2 million and try to make the movie yourself, but basically, you know, it's, it's a dead project. And I thought, you know, if you write plays, uh, you know, worse comes to worst, you can stage them yourself. You know, if the plays are modest enough, um, you know, you can get a small theater and you can hire your cast of two, three people and direct it yourself. And, you know, if there's not a lot of, you know, production involved, if I don't have a helicopter landing on stage, <laughs> you know, you can do it inexpensively and you can see your work and you can invite people and you can hear laughter. So, um, so I, I gravitated towards, uh, towards playwriting. And my first play, um, I, you know, made a rookie mistake and, uh, and had asked of, eight people. And uh, I remember sending the play to Gary Marshall, who has a theater, and uh, and Gary uh, called me up, and he goes, very funny, very funny play. And I said, great, do you want to do something with it? And he goes, too many people. <laughs>
0: So, awesome. I, mean, I want to thank you for taking the time and come on because your your work, you know, I love when I see you on the CNN shows, like the, uh, I in the '90s, and when they did the TV thing, and you just you've had a great career. Now, now you also where can, I believe you do a blog. Where can people find your blog? Uh, my blog,
1: you can go to uh, kenlabine.blogspot.com, or you can go to Google and just type in Ken Labine blog, and I also have my own podcast. Which I need to plug. It's called Hollywood and Levine, and it's uh, a weekly podcast. And you can find it on iTunes and most of the podcast apps. And um, I've been
0: doing it now since the beginning of the year, and it's been really, really fun. Cool. And I know you tweet. What's your Twitter handle? At Ken Levine. Now I got to ask you before we go. I know you're a Dodger fan. But who do you think wins the World Series this year? Who's your call? Cleveland Indians. You think they're going to beat Houston?
1: Yeah. All right. Now, who knows? By the time this thing airs, um, I may look like an idiot. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You know? The the World Series is, you know, it's Houston and... um, you know, and Arizona. Right. Back. So, <laughs> no. so, uh, so, you know, yeah. I may sound like an idiot, but well, no, I, I, I think Cleveland is the team to be. I think
0: especially after last year, they're on a mission. Exactly. Well, people follow follow Ken Levine on Twitter. Go, go IMDB him and go look at his TV. You know, you got Netflix, you can find all this different stuff on TV. He's a, a great writer. Uh, Big baseball fan. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 650 episodes there. Email me, Cooper, Cooper coopertalknet. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. This has been presented by Walk My Mind. You guys have a great day.